Well, I, uh, I felt like last week went pretty well. Um, I, uh, what an incredible weekend. Um, nearly 12,000 people um, that were there. I think uh, it was the largest, if not the largest, one of the largest events that Durham, the city of Durham, has ever had. Uh, 554 people baptized. Uh, you saw that number as well as being able to give away $75,000 and two truckloads full of supplies um, to the homeless ministries of the Triangle. Uh, there's much that we have to be grateful for. There are four things that I have to say um, to you um, about all that. Number one, our volunteers did an absolutely amazing job. 1,300 of our volunteers. 1,300 of our volunteers showed up early, stayed late, uh, prayed and cried through the entire thing. And so I just want to say thank you to you um, who serve so diligently. It's God's work, but God uses vessels to do that, and He used many of you in your selfless labor um, last weekend. The second thing is that we should never, ever summon, never take this for granted. Um, what God is allowing us to experience is not normal, at least not the normal experience. Maybe it ought to be normal. Um, but it's not. Uh, I've been doing um, church for long enough, been around church for long enough to know that it's just not. It's, it's an unusual season of favor that God has given us and allowing us to see our neighbors come to Christ uh, this way. Uh, and it's not um, stopping. Uh, there, uh, last night, we baptized six people in one of the services, all of whom came to Christ um, in last night's service or sometime this week uh, since the ballpark service. Uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not stopping. It's something that's just getting started. It's not normal because I'm not preaching. You know this. I'm not preaching, you know, church growth, kind of four ways to be happy and have a nice life kind of messages. Um, I mean, this is just kind of like gospel. It's simple. It's confrontational even. Um, just now the stories are beginning to surface from last weekend of what, you know, really was taking place. One of our elders um, was telling me, that he was walking past uh, the baptismal counseling area last week. He said, I walked past five chairs. And he said, I heard, he says, I, I know it was at least five different languages being spoke in those chairs. He said, there was one guy, you know, um, speaking in Spanish, a counselor, uh, somebody speaking Spanish. He said, there was a guy um, speaking in Swahili. He said, there was one, there was a, a Chinese guy translating to about six or seven Chinese people telling him what was happening to the other Chinese guy that was being baptized at, at the time. Um, he said five different languages. I said, I said, if you tell me that little tongues of fire were above their head, then I'm not going to believe that. But, um, but uh, it, just, it was just amazing. He, um, uh, 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 whole families being baptized. Uh, a college student that I know, his name's Josh, had eight of his friends um, there last weekend, all of whom got baptized. I think they all rode in the same car, um, by the way, to get there. Um, another one of his friends got baptized last night. He said, um, he introduced me to him last night. He said, as of um, March of this year, this guy was an atheist. Uh, he said, but um, he's he come to Christ this week and he, he got baptized. Um, uh, the, one of our members was telling me that they invited somebody that they knew that was in the occult, um, the occult. He said, I didn't think they'd come, but I thought, you know, why not? So she received my invitation about halfway through um, the message. She leaned over to me and says, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to follow Jesus. Um, and she got baptized last weekend. Last, um, last year, if you remember, there was one of our staff members, her older brother, um, passed away from cancer last year. Um, our staff member's name was Ashley. 
and uh, and this uh, her older brother passed away too. Their families continued to um, just know their medical team that was working with their older brother. Two of them were there last weekend uh, and got baptized uh, as a result of this family's testimony and just the continual prayer and work um, with them. Uh, probably my favorite story of all of them is there's a young couple in our church who um, has gotten involved in the foster care and adoption ministry and uh, became foster parents um, last year or a little over a year ago um, through the ministry of the church here and got to know a family that um, had to give up um, their child um, for a season. They thought it was going to be permanently. And after a year or so, the family reapplied to take custody of the child again. And um, this family, this Summit family, um, you know, the, the, the impulse is to resist that because you know, you've had the child for about a year now, but um, they said that the Holy Spirit very clearly told them not to resist this, um, but instead to begin to pray for the family um, that was reapplied for custody. And, and they um, told me that last weekend that family was there uh, and got baptized, um, came to faith in Christ. And uh, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing um, through the ministry that they are, are taking place. Um, I kind of feel like the Apostle John, um, who must, who, and I've told you this before, who said, if we really knew all the things that God was doing in our midst, all the books and all the, wo all the world could not contain um, what he was doing in and through us. So we are grateful. Um, we don't take it for granted. Because we don't deserve one second of it, and we know that. Uh, we know that God's favor, we open our mouths wide, Psalm 27, to receive even more of it, uh, and we're deeply grateful. The third thing that I want to tell you is that the hard work is in front of us, not behind us. You see, it's very tempting for us to see an event like this and say, oh, and awesome, had a lot of people there and saw all these people get baptized, but God did not call us to have 11,500 people in an audience, and he didn't call us to baptize 554 people as if it was an end in itself. He called us to make disciples. And that means that the hard work is in front of us because most of those people are beginning the process of discipleship. Um, I've told you before why this is deeply personal to me because my parents came to Christ um, through, I get, you would call it, I guess, somewhat of a similar event like that. But because the church that, that put on these kind of events, because they were committed to discipleship, um, my family got not just counted as a number in a big attendance day, they got discipled. And my dad will tell me, he said, of all the sermons I ever heard the, this pastor preach, none of them impacted me as much as just being with him and hearing him pray, hearing him pray. Because this church cared about life-on-life -life discipleship, that's why my parents weren't just a number. That's why they became the people they became. And that's why I got to grow up in a home where I got to know and love Jesus. That's why my kids are growing up in that kind of home, because the church cared about discipleship. And so this for us is a beginning. It's not an end. And you're going to be instrumental in that because you're the one who issued the invitation to begin with. Um, if you brought somebody last week, that means you need to get them into your small group. It means you need to start reading the Bible with them and meeting with them, um, maybe on a weekly basis to discuss what they're reading in the Bible or getting into a good um, Christian book together. Um, that is the work that's in front of us, and we cannot be delinquent in it. Um, the, uh, the fourth thing I'm going to tell you is um, I know that there's a lot of you who— um, after you left last weekend, you didn't get baptized, and you were just kicking yourself all week long because you're like, man, if I could just go back and do that over again, I, I would do it. I, I just couldn't let go. I couldn't do it. And you just swore to God all week, if you could just reverse time and you could just relive the day, I would get baptized. 
Well, I have good news for you. Um, we are doing an encore baptism today so you can make good on that promise to God and you can get baptized at the end of our services. On our Saturday services, we had a number of them um, get baptized. I'll give you more instructions at the end. As usual, we've got all the things that you would need to do that. Uh, we've got your, you know, your, your changes of clothes and all that kind of stuff. But again, more on that at the end. Summit Church at all of our campuses, could we just bow our head and let me on your behalf express a prayer of thanksgiving to God um, for the way that he has given us favor. Father, we know that we don't deserve one second of mercy. God, your mercy is you giving to us or not giving to us what we do deserve. And then on top of that, grace, which is giving to us what we do not deserve. God, and we receive it because we want to be trophies of your glory. God, we do not believe that you are a God who is stingy in grace and blessings, that you bestow it grace upon grace. And so we open our mouths wide to receive it again. We believe that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God, we know that though we've seen some incredible things, we're still dealing with our city, Durham and Raleigh and Chapel Hill and the surrounding areas that are filled with people that have not yet received or been touched by the Holy Spirit and have received that power of salvation. So God, we pray that day by day, you would add to our number those who are being saved. God, we thank you. We thank you, God, for the outpouring of mercy. We thank you that we can be called sons and daughters of yours. We don't rejoice that the enemies are made subject to us. We rejoice that our names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life because that is more mercy than we could ever exhaust in 10,000 lifetimes. God, we rejoice in that and we receive it and we ask God for more of it for the sake of our neighbors. God, be merciful to us and bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us that your way might be known in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill and that your salvation be known among all peoples. God, we ask this because of Jesus, and it is in his great name that we pray. And all God's people, the Summit Church said, amen, amen. When we baptize someone, um, what we ask them in the waters, you may have seen our lips moving and you're not quite sure what's being said. We ask them two questions. The first question is, um, do you understand that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And are you right now receiving him or have you received him um, as your personal savior? Um, the second question we ask is, are you surrendered to Jesus as Lord, willing to go wherever he tells you to go and willing to do whatever he tells you to do? If the answer to both of those questions are, are yes, then that is your confession of faith, then you are ready to be baptized. Um, but here's what I want to ask you this weekend. What does that second question actually mean? Uh, are you surrendered to Jesus as Lord, willing to go wherever he tells you to go and do whatever he tells you to do? I mean, it's easy to kind of say that, but what does that actually, I mean, does that mean that if he shows up in a dream and he tells you something to do, that you will do that? Well, yeah, I certainly hope that you would answer yes to that question. But the way that the early church applied the lordship of Jesus, hear this, the way they applied the lordship of Jesus is by being devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the way they applied it. Remember that phrase a couple weeks ago from Acts 2? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's how you apply the lordship of Jesus is you become devoted to what the apostles taught. What the apostles taught is called the New Testament. So I want to deal with a really basic but very important question this weekend and not skip over it. And that is why do we believe the Bible? Why should we trust what the apostles recorded? Why should we think of that as authority from God? Why should we interpret lordship of Jesus? Why should we interpret that as adherence to what the apostles taught and wrote down? You ever think about that? 
I mean, I'll just ask the question. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I get bewildered when I hear Christians try to defend why they use the Bible as their authority. And I can almost understand why skeptics won't take us seriously. You ask a lot of Christians why they believe the Bible, and they'll be like, well, because it's the Word of God. You're like, well, why do you believe it's the Word of God? Well, because it says so. Well, why do you believe what it says? Because it's the Word of God. And you're like, uh, you know, you can just almost hear the skeptics saying you really have no reason at all to believe what you believe other than that's what your parents taught you. Well, today I want to try to show you why we believe the Bible is the Word of God and why it was the teaching of the apostles that was the foundation of the movement. I'm going to show you that from the last half of Acts 1, which we skipped over for a couple weeks and I want to come back to. Let me read the last half of Acts 1 to you, starting in verse 12. Then they returned, they being the apostles, returned from Jerusalem, from the mount, for to Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet, where Jesus had ascended from. And when they'd entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and the rest of the apostles and disciples, which, whose names I won't mention, minus Judas, of course. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. If you ever wonder, by the way, why we do not believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that is why right there, because Jesus had a bunch of brothers. You know, they were half brothers to him because they were the sons of Mary and Joseph, but how could he have a bunch of brothers if Mary was a perpetual virgin? Duh. Okay. So that's why, in case you're curious about that. Um, Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of the persons was in all about 120. Um, so you got 11 apostles and 109 other people. And they said, verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Mm. Isn't that an edifying verse? You want to put that one on your memorization list. Um, by the way, um, whenever I sign a book, uh, you know, like a book that I've written, a lot of times I'll write Acts 1.18 as one of my life verses just to confuse people. Just so they get back and they're like, what? A yeah, whatever. Um, what does it mean? Verse 19. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, which in Aramaic means the field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, chapter 69, or Psalm 69 to be exact, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and Psalm 110, let another take his office. Verse 21, so Peter said, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, starting with the baptism of John, Going all the way through the death and resurrection, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Verse 23, and they put forward two, Joseph, who was also called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Guy's got some name issues here. Uh, Can't just pick one man, go with it. Um, But he's got three names. And then this other guy who has just one name, Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and this apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And so they cast lots for them. means they rolled the dice. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And the other guy said it was an honor just to be nominated. Okay? So here's a question. Why is this story in there? Why is the story in there? You always ought to ask that question. Is it to tell us how we ought to choose a successor? Is that why? Is it trying to tell you that, hey, if, if, if I'm not pastor anymore, you get a couple guys, roll the dice, see which one God chose? Is that how you're supposed to pick a girlfriend? You just kind of roll the dice, so like, oh, number seven, that's the seventh girl I met, boom, I got to ask you out? No. 
Um, there's a lot of stuff in Acts that we say is descriptive, not prescriptive. It describes what happened, not prescribes what we ought to do. There's nowhere in the Bible, anywhere else in the New Testament, that tells us that's how we ought to go about decision-making. It's describing it for us. So it's not there to tell us how to pick successors. Um, it's not there to introduce to us this pivotal character, Matthias. You, because you know how I know that? He's never mentioned again, never. Nowhere in the Bible is his name ever brought up again. So why is it in there? I believe that it's in there to show you, listen, it's in there to show you how the apostles viewed themselves and how they viewed the scriptures, both the Old Testament and what we would now call the New Testament, the scriptures they would write, and it demonstrates for you right at the beginning of Acts why the Bible is going to become the authoritative divine guide for Christians. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you four things about this passage that support that. Number one, I'm going to show you how the apostles saw Old Testament scriptures. Number two, I'm going to show you the authority that the apostles assumed for writing new scriptures, which is going to be the New Testament. Number three, I'm going to show you the resolution to an apparent contradiction. And then number four, I'm going to give you a reason for skeptics to consider the apostles' bold claims to authority. Okay? Now, if you are a, a copious note taker, um, I love you and are glad you are at our church. Um, just write down the things that really stick in your mind right now. This whole transcript, you try to write this down, you're going to scribble your hand off. Um, the transcript is available online as it always is, essentially word for word, including the dumb jokes. They're in there too. It's all in there. Um, you can get it and, and get some of the facts of this. So just write down in your notes what maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. Okay? So number one, how the apostles saw Old Testament scripture. All right, I'm going to give you two things, two ways they saw Old Testament Scripture you can see in this passage. Um, letter A, they saw them as authenticated prophecies about Jesus. That's how they saw the Old Testament, as authenticated prophecies about Jesus. In Acts 1.16, Peter quotes a psalm, and he says, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then he goes on to relate what was predicted about Judas. The apostles saw the whole Old Testament as a book written by the Holy Spirit predicting the coming of Jesus. Bible scholars tell us there are close to, we're not close to exactly, 322 direct prophecies that describe for us the character and the nature of the Messiah, details specifically about his life, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and the fulfillment of these prophecies helped prove to them that Jesus really was from God. They were like a divine signature that could not be forged because it was God signing beforehand, this is what it's going to look like. I saw recently um, an interesting example from a CIA report. Whenever a double agent wants to report something to the CIA, the CIA will put what they call multiple layers of tests to make sure they got the right guy or the right girl that's revealing the information. They don't want to you know, mess something up. So for example, this is an actual example, one particular Soviet double agent was given six prearranged signs to accomplish when he was going to contact the CIA. He was to go, number one, to Mexico City. Number two, he was to contact a certain guy in that city and identify himself by the name of the initial I period Jackson. Number three, after three days, he was to go to a specific place in the city. And he was, number four, to stand in front of the statue of Columbus in Mexico City. He was to open up a, a map book and place his middle finger in it and just stand there. When somebody approached him asking for directions, he was to first say that the statue of Columbus was a magnificent statue and that he was from Oklahoma. 
at that point, the CIA would know that they had their guy. Jesus had not six signs to identify him, but 322. Scripture says, for example, in Micah 5.2, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that happened. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he would be of the tribe of Judah and from the lineage of David, that happened. That in Zechariah 11, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and that silver would be used to buy a potter's field, that happened. That he would be, uh, be preceded by John the Baptist, Malachi 3.1, that happened. That he would, would, would die by being pierced through and that he would be, die as a substitute for other sinners. Isaiah 53, 5, that happened. That he would be raised from the dead. Psalm 16, 10, that happened. All these things are God's way of authenticating, that's my guy, that's the one I've sent. I've heard it said before that the mathematical odds of all that happening by coincidence is something like covering the entire states of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia in, in quarters. Painting one of the quarters, or two and a half feet deep, by the way, two and a half feet of quarters over the entire three states, painting one of them purple, and then taking a blind man and catapulting him in from somewhere like in Maryland, and then wherever he lands, picking one quarter, the odds of him picking the one correct quarter out of the entire three states of two and a half feet deep quarters is the same odds of all 322 prophecies happening to coalesce upon Jesus Christ randomly. So as authenticated prophecies about Jesus, here's the second thing, letter B, as words from the Holy Spirit. They saw the Old Testament as words from the Holy Spirit. Look again at Acts 1.16. Peter quotes a psalm written by David, but he says it was the Holy Spirit's words. Now, which is it? Is it David's words or is it the Holy Spirit's words? Yes. How could something you say simultaneously be the word of God and the word of men? How could it be simultaneously be David's words and the Holy Spirit's words? The analogy I've used with you before is, is when my kids were learning to walk, you know, a toddler, they kind of, you know, the first two or three steps they're taking, they're shaking everywhere and they're falling over. So I would hold their hand and I'm walking along beside them. It is their feet that is taking the steps, but it is me that controls where they go. So in a sense, it's them walking. And in another sense, it's me walking. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing with the Bible. It is the men who are speaking, but it is the Holy Spirit that is guaranteeing that they are saying exactly what he wants them to say. So how could, listen, how could fallible men produce an infallible document? That's how. You see, I hear a lot of people say this, like a lot of people. Well, the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles, gave them like God thoughts, you know, but they were fallible men. So they got a lot of stuff wrong when they were writing it down. So the divine parts, the inspiration of the Bible, that's inerrant, but the human parts they're fallible. Well, think about Jesus, right? Jesus was called the Word of God, and Jesus was what? Fully God and fully man. Did the fully man part of him make him fallible and sinful? Not hardly. The divine part made him perfect so that fully God plus fully man equals fully perfect. Well, the same way, the Bible is fully man plus fully God, and the product is fully perfect. It's not that the Bible writers were themselves infallible. They were not. It's because they wrote under the influence of the Holy Spirit that the product they gave forth, the Bible, was infallible. Here's how Peter said it in 2 Peter. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Not one word of that came from the heart of man. It all came as men were carried along. Pharaoh in Greek. The word Pharaoh, carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was the word they used when a ship would be, you know, being driven by the wind. Right, so the wind is kind of blowing it where it's going to go. The Holy Spirit was moving these men along so that what they wrote was according to the exact destination that God had intended. 
Now, that didn't mean that the Bible doesn't sometimes speak with human conventions of speech, estimations, metaphors, figures of speech, just that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16, that the law of God is perfect, reviving the soul, um, uh, Psalm 19, that that not one word of it can be broken, John 10.30, that sooner would heaven and earth pass away than one jot or tittle from God's word ever not come to pass or ever be found wrong, Matthew 5.18. Because the apostles saw the Bible as divine, their opinions about things ceased to matter. They quit speculating about their opinions, and they started to say, what does the Holy Spirit say? And because they saw the Bible as divine, they devoted themselves to it. Here's a quick question for you. Is that how you feel about the Bible? Do you feel the liberty to put the Bible on trial and accept certain parts of it and reject certain others? It astounds me how many believers feel the liberty to just opt out of like 10% of the Bible that they just don't really find convenient for them. If it is the word of God, then you adhere to it, all of it. Now, properly interpreted, yes, but you adhere to all of it. If Jesus is going to be Lord, he's going to be Lord of all. And if you're the kind that feels like you can pick and choose what parts of the Bible you get to follow and which ones you don't, then I don't think you understand the concept of lordship. Look, it's either from God or it's not. If it's not from God, then choose your own way. If it is from God, then you better surrender to what he says right? If it's the Word of God, you devote yourself to it. That's why when I get up here, very little am I trying to tell you eight things that make the Greer family happy. I'm not trying to tell you my life secrets or be your life coach. I hate it when a pastor calls himself that. I'm I'm not your life coach, right? I'm the guy who stands up, opens the Bible, and yells at you for 45 minutes, but I'm just trying to tell you what God's Word says because that is the Word we're devoted to because it is the Word of God, and what you people need is not the Word of men. You need the Word of God, right? All right, number two, number two, the authority the apostles assumed for writing new scripture. So we see how they saw the old stuff. Now, number two, the authority they assumed for writing new scripture. Peter says, verse 21, the men who accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, starting with the baptism of John, went all the way through the resurrection and ascension, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, listen closely. Peter feels like they need to replace Judas because Jesus had declared that 12 apostles would be his authoritative representatives. And since Judas was gone, because he betrayed, you know, and left, they needed a new 12th man. Texas A&M, right? There you are. They needed a new 12th man. The number 12 was important because it corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel. These guys, and these guys were like the new Israel, right? So these guys were supposed to be the official authoritative representatives of Jesus. And the requirement was that they had to have been with Jesus from the very beginning, from the baptism of John all the way through to the end. Now, you say, well, where did Jesus say that these apostles were going to be the official authoritative representatives? Great question. Several places. I'm only going to give you two. John 14, 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, watch this, speaking to the apostles, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So there's your promise. It's not going to be these guys sitting around going, what did he say again? I don't know. I can't remember that. Well, yeah, that's not. No, I'm going to bring it to you infallibly so that you can write it down exactly as I intended it for it to be understood. All right, here, here's another one. Matthew 16, 19. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. These apostles had Jesus' authority to declare his judgments and record them authoritatively. So that all the books in the New Testament, listen, all these books are either written by an apostle or they come out of what we call the apostolic community. And what I mean by that is Mark, Luke, 
These guys are not apostles, but they traveled with apostles, and their writing comes out of the apostolic community so that the apostles verified that what they were saying was an accurate record of what Jesus had taught. Right? Same is true with Paul. Paul, you know, who would come along a little later. Peter would say this about Paul. <laughs> this is one of my favorite verses, things that Peter ever said. It's right at the, one of the last things he said in the second Peter. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> Did it make you feel better? I'm like, oh, you too. I mean, I can just see Peter looking at you know, reading Romans 9 like, what in the world are you talking about? I feel like that half the time. And he says, he says, the ignorant and the unstable twist them to their own destruction just like they do the other scriptures. What did he just call Paul's writings? Scripture. He's thinking of Paul's words as scripture. Now, that's two things you got to learn from that verse. One, he sees Paul's words as scripture. Number two, you got to get the humor of Peter saying Paul is hard to understand. Have you ever read the book of 2 Peter? There's a reason I've never preached on 2 Peter at this church. And that's because it's right up there with Revelation, like, I don't know what in the world you're talking about half the time, Peter. Uh, and so it's, I just find it humorous. Um, that's seminary humor. Sorry about that. Um, what I'm trying to show you, I'm trying to show you that at the very beginning of Acts, the apostles have taken on the responsibility because of the promise of Jesus to speak and write authoritatively on Jesus. And from that point on, whenever they speak or write about Jesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what they write is considered to be the words of the Holy Spirit, the very words of God, which is why we trust this book and it's why we build everything we do on it because of the promise of Jesus. Number three, number three, the resolution of an apparent contradiction. Whenever people say the Bible contradicts itself, my response is always, okay, why don't you show me an example? And there's this awkward silence where they're like, well, I can't really think of one right now, but I know there's a lot of them. And I'm like, well, just pick one. And we stand there for two or three awkward minutes, and it basically comes out, they've never found one, they don't know about one, they just heard that somewhere, and they're just saying that. Nine out of ten times, that's what happens. On that one out of ten times that they actually produce a contradiction, all right, three out of four of those times, this is the one they come up with, the one that's in Acts chapter 1. So why don't we talk about it for a minute, Okay. Here's the supposed contradiction. Matthew 27 says that Judas died by hanging himself. But in Acts 1, it says that he died by falling off a cliff and having his bowels burst out. Okay? Um, Matthew 27 says that the money that Judas earned for betraying Jesus, he threw back into the temple in disgust, and the Jewish authorities used it to buy a field. But when Peter retells the story in Acts 1, he says that Judas bought the field with the 30 pieces of silver. So which is it? Did he die by hanging or did he fall down and have his bowels burst out? And did he, did he give the money back or did he go buy a field with it? Clear contradictions, right? Not necessarily. When you hang yourself, <laughs> you weren't expecting to learn this at church. When you hang yourself, if your body stays that way for a long time, the body swells up. And evidently, eventually the branch broke and he fell down and his abdomen ruptured and his gut spilled out. Or I've been to that area. Scholars say that the area is really rocky and hilly, so maybe the branch that he hung himself on overlooked a, a small cliff, and when he hung himself, the branch broke and it happened. Right? So they both kind of happened. It's not a contradiction. It's just two different eyewitness accounts of the same thing. One guy saw Peter's, you know, saw Judas's body dangling from the, the, the branch and he hung himself. Another guy found him after he'd done it. So they, they put the two together, and you got a fuller story than you do with one account. 
with the money situation. One writer says he, you know, threw it back. Another one says he bought the field. What probably happened is that Judas threw the money back and the Jewish authorities brought, bought the field with it, like Matthew says. But when Peter tells the story in Acts, he just shortens it to say Judas bought the field since the money that he earned from selling Jesus was used for that purpose anyway. Right? So it's not really a contradiction. It's just different. Whenever you have eyewitness accounts, you put them together and you get a fuller story. That's what's happening here. Now, that is just one resolution to a supposed contradiction. But I will tell you that I have looked at these supposed contradictions for years, hundreds of them. And just about every single time with a little study and a little work, you find that they, they harmonize. And there's a plausible way to resolve it. So don't just write that off and don't believe what you hear just because people are too lazy to get in there and figure out what's actually being said. All right? Don't be gullible. Don't be naive. Study it out for yourself. You got a problem with a certain contradiction? You email me and I'll have me or one of my research assistants. We'll send you a place you can find where the contradiction resolves. All right, number four. Number four, a reason for skeptics to consider the apostles' claims to authority. Let me give you a reason for skeptics to consider the apostles' claims to authority. Now, if you're one of those skeptics who say, well, I just don't believe the Bible because it claims to be the Word of God. A lot of people have claimed that over the years. Muhammad, and Joseph Smith, David Koresh, if you remember that guy. Um, they've claimed to speak the Word of God. So I'm just not going to believe the apostles when they say they're speaking the Word of God. If that's you, that's fine, really. Because there's another reason for you to consider their claims. Look at what Peter claims there in Acts 1. Acts 1, 21, 22, he says, we got to find somebody who was an eyewitness to the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. They can't have heard about it, can't have read about it. They got to hear about it. I mean, they got to, excuse me, have seen it. He's got to be an eyewitness. In his intro to the book of Acts, Luke, remember Luke wrote Luke and Acts, so it's like a two-volume set. So the intro to the whole thing is in Luke. And Luke says this, Luke 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning, the apostles, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So in other words, Luke is saying, I'm writing a bunch of eyewitness accounts. I'm going to record these eyewitness accounts for you. Before you consider the Bible as the Word of God, consider it as a series of eyewitness accounts pointing to something supernatural that happened, namely the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then evaluate whether these accounts are reliable and ought to be believed. Don't evaluate them as if I'm telling you, you got to assume they're the word of God. Forget they're the word of God for a minute or forget I believe that and just evaluate them on the face of their claims that they're eyewitness accounts. Okay? So, the, well, the most popular idea right now against that, because once you say they're eyewitnesses, it becomes really hard to kind of, you know, deny that what they saw was legit. I'll tell you why that's true in a minute. But um, the most popular theory against that right now is that the Gospels are a bunch of myths and legends. The theory basically goes like this, that Jesus was a really nice guy, he had some cool religious thoughts, he's kind of a beatific hippie, you know, he, he kind of stuck up for the little guy and he stuck it to the man and, and he got this, you know, kind of movement going. And then after he died, um, his disciples, in order to beef up his authority, they started to, over the years, add these little claims, these legends grew up so that they kind of added in the supernatural parts. Like, let me give you a good example. Uh, one of my college professors told me this one. Um, he, said, he, said, he said, well, see what happened is, like the feeding of the 5,000? He said, um, when, when what, hap what, what probably really happened 
is when Jesus brings a little boy up, the five loaves and two fish, and the little boy shares his lunch, Jesus shows everybody, hey, the little boy shared his lunch. And that makes all the adults feel bad because they had the lunch hidden in their back pocket, didn't want to share. So they saw what the little boy did, so they all pulled out their lunch and they shared, and that's how the 5,000 got fed. He said that with a straight face. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna write that down, you know? Um, but that's the idea. And later, when they were telling the story, they're like, oh, he's God, and he, like, you know, he, he, he did that. All right, so let me tell you four reasons that the Gospels could not be myths or legends. Four reasons, okay? Jot these down. A lot of these come from a book called Reason for God, uh, so you can check it out there too. Um, number one, the timing of the writing is too early for Gospels, the Gospels to be a legend. The timing of the writing is too early for the Gospels to be a legend. The books of the Bible were written about 30 years after the death of Jesus, some as early as 20 years. The last one was written 60 years after Jesus' death. That is just way too early for a myth or a legend to spring up. I found some interesting proof recently that the Bible, the New Testament was written within about 50 or 60 years of Jesus' death. Um, can I give it to you? It's a little bit of a nerd moment. So um, this is nerd to nerd for those of you that are nerds. If you're not nerd, you know, um, I'll use the sports analogy in a minute and bring it back in. But, um, but just for nerds, let me, let me talk to the nerds for a minute because I, I found this fascinating. Um, Listen, follow this. Um, you know how, like, um, sometimes you can tell what parts of the world certain things are coming from by which words are used? Like, for example, English. If you see something written in English and the word color is spelled C-O-L-O-U-R, what does that tell you? A Brit wrote it. That's right. Because they have these crazy spellings that don't make any sense, like Kalauer and Jesus Christ, our Savior, and I'm going to go to the theatre, um, or where's the century? It's just like, yo, well, why would you spell it that way? So if you see it written that way, that tells you it was written somewhere in England, right? Or you've got names, same name, but it's going to be written or pronounced differently. John, Johan, Juan, you know, same deal. You've got certain manners of expression show you what time period things are written in. So, for example, if you're reading something and it says, gee, golly whiz, that's swell, it's like that probably wasn't spoken by Eminem in the 1990s, right? And that's that's going to come from, you know, leave it to Beaver in the 1950s. And so, 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 so what you find, watch this, what you find is when you study the New Testament, all the names and all the forms of expression are first century, early first century Palestinian, okay, from that part of the world. By contrast, all the spurious gospels, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Thomas, all those ones that, that are what we call apocryphal gospels, they all use names and words and manners of expression that are dated much later from different parts of the world, right? So the idea that these things, you know, were legend, it just doesn't hold up because they're all too, it's too early for gospels and legends. But you say, well, maybe, maybe the early Christians believed that Jesus was a good religious teacher, but maybe just over time as they were recount, that's when the divinity of Jesus got added in. No, listen, the very first accounts of the Christian movement, 1 Corinthians is one of the first books we know was written. The very first accounts, um, Paul in 1 Corinthians quotes a hymn, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, you know, like sometimes when I'm preaching, I'll quote a hymn that you all kind of know and you kind of nod your head like, oh, yeah, you know. Paul quotes a hymn because he knows everybody knows it. And the hymn is about the resurrection of Jesus, which means that they're already singing about the resurrection of Jesus in the earliest church gatherings. Um, uh, in, uh, um, they celebrated communion. The earliest Christians celebrated communion. Why would you celebrate the murder of your leader if it hadn't been swallowed up in some kind of victory? Right? I mean, if you're a fan of Martin Luther King, you're not like, oh, let's celebrate the day he got shot. No, you mourn that day. They celebrated communion because they believed in the resurrection. In Philippians, Paul quotes another hymn where they celebrate the deity of Jesus Christ which means the earliest Christians worshiped Jesus as God. 
right? So here's your second reason. The content is far too counterproductive to be a legend. So it's too, written too early to be a legend. Number two, it's too counterproductive to be a legend. Here's what I mean by that. There's a lot of stuff in there you just wouldn't make up if you were writing a legend to beef up your authority. If you were going to write a legend to beef up your authority, you wouldn't make up the stuff that's in there. For example, on nearly every page, the apostles are buffoons, right? You're reading the Gospels, and following them is like reading a Three Stooges episode. Right? They're always getting stuff wrong. They're being mean to little kids. I mean, you call that story yet? Oh, the kids are annoying. Get them away. Um, you know, they're, they're arguing about who is the, the most awesome among them. If there were puppies in the New Testament, these guys would have been kicking them. That's just kind of how they're presented. You're like, who are these guys? If you were writing a legend to get people to believe, is that the kind of thing you would just make up, that all your leaders were class A idiots for three years? Or here's one of the very best ones. Um, Matthew records that Peter, Peter, the head of the church now, Jesus called him one time, one call, Satan. Now, is that the kind of thing you're going to make up about your leader? I mean, if you're trying to get somebody to come to church here, are you going to be like, oh, yeah, Jesus had a conversation with our pastor the other day and called him Satan? <laughs> right? I mean, I'm, I'm not tweeting that out if that happens. You know, Jesus called me Satan, hashtag humbled by this. I, I'm not going to do that. You, you wouldn't say that unless it were true. Why would they record that if they were trying to beef up their authority? Here's one more. Um, all of the first resurrection accounts, all of them were women. In those days, listen, a woman's testimony was not accepted in a court of law. All right? And again, I, I, that's offensive to you women. I understand that. But in those days, if you were trying to build a case and make stuff up to get people to believe you, why would you put women as the first ones to see Jesus resurrected from the dead? You would never do that unless it actually happened. So it's too counterproductive to be a legend. Number three, the literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be a legend. The literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be a legend. This is one of my favorites. Because the idea is this. People think that maybe the apostles made up all these fictitious parables that had a true moral meaning, but they were just making up the stories and they were never intended to be taken literally. Here's the problem with that. The Bible's got all these random details included that don't have anything to do with the grand moral meaning. You know, I, I, every time we get to one of these in the Bible and I'm teaching, I always point it out. And so you're like, why is he pointing that out? This is why. Mark 4.36 is a good example. I love this. It's just so random. You never, never underline this in your Bible. It says that Jesus was teaching from a ship, you know, out in the, from the shore, and there were a bunch of other little ships around him. Well, what's the point of the other little ships being around him? There is no point to the other little ships being around him. It's just the guy's remembering it. He's like, oh, yeah, it was like some ships. I better write that down. <laughs> He's just recalling it from memory. Or my absolute favorite one I pointed out to you is Mark chapter 14. In the midst of a really serious reflection on the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark records a detail about one guy fleeing from the seed naked. Why is that detail in there? I'll tell you why. Because no matter what story you're telling, if a guy runs through it naked, you put that in the story, right? <laughs> If I go to J. Crew to buy some jeans and I come home and tell my wife, the guy run through the store naked, that's making it in whether it's part of the plot of the story or not. <laughs> right? The guy's like, oh yeah, we were doing this. And the guy ran away naked. Let me write that down. You know, so you say, well, maybe, maybe they made up these details so that they would sound historical. So in other words, they were lying. Okay. Did they have good motives for lying? You know, did their lying get them out of trouble? That's why I lie. 
to get myself out of trouble. Did their lying get them out of trouble? Uh Uh-uh, it got them into trouble. Did their lying gain for them power and prestige? Did it gain for them a lot of money? Not hardly, it caused them to lose everything. So what's the motive for their lying? That leads me to number four, the message was itself too costly to be a legend. The message was too costly to be a legend be a legend. The message that Jesus was Lord and arisen from the dead didn't get the apostles any power or prestige. It cost them their lives. We know that from the very beginning, those preaching the gospel were a highly persecuted group. Church history tells us that all the apostles died in poverty, martyrs' deaths. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, became the leader of the early church, the other leader, Peter, and then James was the leader in Jerusalem. Um, James, the, the secular historian Josephus, he's not a Christian, says that James died by being beheaded and then stoned. And he died because he would not relent from the confession that Jesus was God and that he had raised from the dead. Now, get this. You remember James in the Gospels didn't believe in Jesus. It says that his half-brothers didn't believe and his mother didn't, or maybe his mother mother did, but um, but a lot of his family didn't believe. But here in Acts 1, you see they believe. He believed, listen to this, just let this sink in on you. He came to believe that his older brother was God. How many of you have an older brother? Raise your hand. What would it take to convince you that he was God? (laughs) Is that an easy case to make? You're like, maybe Satan, maybe, you might convince me of that, but not God. James and all of his brothers in Acts 1 come to believe that Jesus is God. Why? Because of the resurrection. That's why they came to believe it. They were willing to die to testify to it. To say that they just made up the stories about Jesus means, just think this out. It means that one day they're sitting around fishing, I guess, after Jesus has died. And Peter's like, man, I just stinks that Jesus died. Yeah, it was awesome for a while. You know, they're reeling their fish in. And Peter says, I know, I just had an idea. Let's say that he resurrected. Yeah, that's an awesome idea. Then we can be the leaders of this new religious movement. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, resurrection. Okay, Peter says, okay, but, but let's tell people that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, we should give away all our money. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's give away all our money. And let's tell them that Jesus was, because his kingdom was not of this world, because he was a God of compassion, that when we're persecuted, we'll never fight back. Let's just go to our martyrs' deaths joyfully and teach our friends and family to do the same thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's go die. Does that really, I mean, is that, you find that compelling? I just don't find that that compelling. There's no way that you're going to go to your death dying for something that you know to be a lie, right? If you're going to make a story up, that's not the kind of story you make up, the kind that loses you everything. Peter, who is the leader here of the church, would eventually be crucified upside down. That's the same Peter who denied Jesus three times in the space of one night. You think the Peter that betrayed the living Jesus is gonna turn around and die for a dead one? I just don't think and find that's very compelling. So to the skeptic, those are four reasons for you to consider the claims by the apostles that they really are speaking on God's behalf. You see, follow this. If the resurrection is true, then it makes sense to me that God would empower his apostles to record an accurate version of all that Jesus wanted us to know and to do, right? Because what's the, what's the point of him going to all the trouble to send Jesus to rescue us if we don't have an accurate copy of what he wanted us to know, right? I mean, it's like me. It, it, let's say I lived in L.A. and I wanted you to come visit me. And so I'd pay for your plane ticket, not 800 bucks for a plane ticket. 
but I don't tell you where I live in LA. So when you get off the, you know, the airplane, you're like, I don't have any idea where he lives in LA. There's 19 million people here. You're no closer to me in LA than you were in North Carolina in that thing. So I just wasted all my money. Why would God go to all the waste of sending Jesus to resurrect from the dead and then not authorize an account that would tell us accurately and authoritatively what he wanted us to know? So I believe the Bible for the same reason these first believers did. I believe it because I am convinced of the testimony that the apostles gave us is true. I'm convinced that Jesus really did resurrect from the dead. I'm convinced he really was on a rescue mission to save us, that he died not for his sin but for mine, that he really was God in the flesh, and he is to be worshipped by all peoples of all nations and all places at all times forevermore. That's why I believe the Bible is the word of God. Now, let me flip it on you. That's why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Why do you believe it is not the Word of God? Why do you believe it's not? Be honest with yourself. Have you ever read it? It's amazing to me how many people tell me they don't believe the Bible and they've just never read it. They've just never read it. Or, or maybe, you, maybe, how about this one? You don't like some of the claims that it makes about morality or about what God wants to do with your life. And so just kind of from the beginning, you say, well, I, there's no way I could consider whether it's true because I won't let this right here be challenged. I won't let this view of morality be challenged. I won't let this be touched. Hey, let me ask you a question. I'm not trying to be snide or catty. Does that sound open-minded to you? When you from the beginning say this couldn't be true because if it's true, it's going to challenge this over here that I believe? That sounds to me like the definition of closed-mindedness. And I would say if you're honest with yourself, that's probably more the reason why you don't believe, and not all of you, but I'd say it's probably a big reason for some of you. Frank Mead said it this way, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. Men reject the Bible because it contradicts them. And maybe you should just be honest, see, because you'll never know the truth about God until you are willing to let God shatter all of your categories. And until you're willing to come to God and say, God, what I believe may be wrong. And you're God and I'm not and I'm just going to say that whatever I find to be the truth, I'm going to surrender what I believe to what you say is right. You see, I would say that there's a number of you that for the last several weeks, God's been working on your heart, right? That's why you're here. You've seen, you've seen the power of the Bible go to work in one of your friend's lives. And you're seeing it transform them. Maybe you should just start reading it. Maybe that's your action. Just start reading it. Maybe read it with that person and say, could we, could we get together once a week and just discuss what we're reading? Maybe if you're the Christian friend, you ought to invite them to do that. You realize that more people have believed the Bible is the word of God in history than any other religious doctrine ever. It's at least worth you taking time to consider whether or not it is actually from God. Summit, this is why we devote ourselves to it. It's why we memorize it. It's why we obsess about it because we believe it is the very words of God. Now, I told you at the beginning of the message that the confession, the confession that we believe is baptism. That's where you confess that not only do you believe the Bible, but you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, namely, that he died as a substitute for your sin, as an offer of salvation, and that he is the Lord. There are some of you in here that, just while I am speaking today, have come to believe for the first time. And in just a minute, I'm going to lead you to pray a prayer of receiving Christ. And then in a minute, our campus pastors are going to come. They're going to give an invitation. You ought to come and be baptized because today you are crossing that line of faith and saying, yes, Jesus, I believe you're the Lord. I believe you're the Savior. You may have lots of questions still, but you at least believe that much. 
And so I'm going to invite you to come and be baptized. There are others of you that maybe made that decision a while ago. You trusted Christ as Lord and Savior a while back, but you've never publicly declared it. It's the first act of obedience. Do not say it's not important because Jesus gets to decide what's important, not you. That's what it means for him to be Lord. And you just need to cross that line and say, today I'm going to go public with my faith and I'm going to make a decision I should have made a long time ago and I'm going to be publicly baptized. That's my invitation, going to be my invitation to you. But let's do first things first. Why don't you bow your heads with me and, and at all of our campuses, bow your heads. If you have become convinced, maybe not absolutely certain, but convinced enough to begin to follow that Jesus really is God's gift to you to save you and that he is the Lord, you could pray a prayer that would sound something like this. You can use these words, but pray them from your heart. Lord Jesus, I believe you died in my place and I receive you right now as my savior. I believe you died in my place and I receive you right now as my savior. Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Lord and I surrender all of me to you right now. Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Lord and I surrender all of me to you right now. I need the Holy Spirit. Fill me with him right now. Now all of our campuses, if you prayed that prayer, you can keep your heads bowed for just a minute. I'm going to pray over you and then our campus pastors are going to come and they're going to give you instructions about how you can be baptized. We got everything that you need. We got all the equipment. And again, there's a lot of you that you trusted Christ a long time ago, but you've just never made that decision, and this invitation is for you too. Let me pray over you, and then our campus pastors are going to come. Father, thank you that your spirit is still working in us and through us. Thank you for the invitation you gave this weekend to some that they received. God, I pray that you would give both those that just trusted Christ just now and those that trusted Christ a while ago but haven't been baptized, give them both the courage to take this so incredibly important step of going public and crossing that line of faith and declaring that you're their Lord and Savior. Give them strength to do what they need to do next, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.